1: Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: Welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. Although, as I speak to you today, it is 9.12 on a Friday morning, and frankly, we're not savages. Although my guest this week is no stranger to rolling in on air with a few drinks under her belt. More of that in a moment. You'll know her best as a scientist, a broadcaster, a writer, and decorated fellow – Uh, as well as being one of the friendliest and possibly most familiar faces on breakfast television. She began her working life at the Met Office and the Cardiff Weather Center before moving on to provide weather forecast briefings for the Royal Air Force. Then TV came calling and in 2007, she joined the BBC weather team, later making the lead to ITV in 2012, where she's been ever since presenting the weather, first for Daybreak and now on GMB. She's also the author of her very first book, Everyday Ways to Save Our Planet, full of simple, bright ideas to do exactly that, to make simple changes, to help preserve and repair our planet in the face of a climate crisis. Married to her university sweetheart, Dean Brown, since 2010, they're parents to Charlotte, who's four. And I cannot wait to get her on the line and rummage around in that big old brain of hers. So let's dial her up, it's Laura Tobin. Oh, good morning. This is I mean, this is almost lunch
0: for isn't it? Well, do you know what? Actually, I was having a champagne breakfast this time yesterday because it was Debbie and Wardrobe's birthday. So this isn't too early for me. Debbie dresses, <laughs> wow. Yes. She is a fine woman. I've I've had the pleasure of uh, of Debbie's dresses. She kept her birthday secret. I was like, Debbie, she was like, shh shh. shh. I was like, we need to go and have some champagne for breakfast. And she said, no. And then I went back in three minutes later and said, are you coming? And she said, oh, OK. <laughs> so,
1: <Vising. laughs> so easily swayed. So easily swayed. Mind you, by the time you come off air, you've already done, what, four or five hours um, by 9 a.m.? Yeah.
0: yeah. So up at 4 a.m., Yeah. And you go all
1: over the place, Laura. I mean, every day I think, blimey, she must have just been driving all through the afternoon into the early early hours of the evening to be up for the early hours of the morning. How do you, keep
0: up with it all? Do you know what? I don't really need sleep. I don't even know why. Like, I remember even at university, I was always the person that everybody could come to in halls. They're like, Laura will be up. I'll be pottering around, faffing, doing something. So, yeah, I just don't really need, like, too much sleep. And sometimes... Like now that my daughter's at school, I can have a daytime nap. And that's just the most exciting thing when you like skip upstairs and you know I'm in bed and you're like, "Woo! I get an hour or two hour nap. Oh, but, nana nap is not best, isn't it? Not much. Yeah, I do love it. But, you know, obviously with doing the book and then there's all you know lots of things at work or whatever so sometimes there isn't a chance for naps.
1: <laughs> you I mean you've been doing this a, a long time a lot of people can't stay the course with these hours um but you do it with like I mean you just keep smiling and then in amongst it all you've had a daughter who was born prematurely
0: um mm-hmm. so
1: you have to make the logistics of and the emotion the emotional fallout of that must have been quite enormous I had a, a baby who was premature so I get the anxiety that's uh, around that yeah but Once you emerge from that, you then have to put all these logistics in place because you and your husband both work for childcare, travel, stupid o'clock wake up calls. I mean, how do
0: you do it? Mm -hmm. I'm very lucky that my husband has a regular hour job, Mm. which means that, you know, if we were both shift workers, it would have been nearly impossible. And I have a really good childminder who's really flexible and friends nearby um, who are just super lovely as well. But you're totally right. Like, you know, the mummy guilt's there. But also I want her to see that I work. I love my job and she knows that I love it. And I think it's really important for her to see that as well. So, yeah, it's fine. I mean, like, it was really bad when I, in September, I went to Svalbard. It was amazing. And I talk about it a lot and everyone's really bored of it now. But um, it was the week she started school. So I was there for her first day, like her first half day. But then her first full day and her first week at school, I wasn't there. I was in Svalbard. So, you know, it, at the time it, it felt like, you know, a really difficult choice you know the sacrifice but actually it's like it totally wasn't it wasn't because she completely understood that I was going to see the polar bears because their ice is melting and um and it was great it was like you know the trip of a lifetime 100% I mean I knew that you were
1: um smart I knew that you were properly qualified to present the weather as opposed to somebody that just (laughs) reads and points um but your love of science is is enormous isn't it I mean you are a super brain
0: well, I don't know if I'm a super brain. I just love, I love science. I've always loved science. I love learning new things and discovering new things. And like it with the book, I really, really wanted to have science in there. Like, I just think it's nice to give a sprinkle. If people have a little understanding of something, I think it goes a long way to appreciating and understanding more. You know, I just love reading new things and learning new things every day. And actually Charlotte, my daughter is like, she loves it as well. She just has this like ability to like, I tell her something she just remembers like two years ago I went to NASA they're sending the first woman to the moon so the Apollo missions obviously sent the first man to the moon and that now they have this Artemis mission and Artemis is Apollo's twin sister so it's about sending the next man and the first woman to the moon so they said to Good Morning Britain have you got anybody there who wants to come who could talk about women in science and they were like yeah we know somebody (laughs) so uh I was like yes oh my god this is amazing so I got to go to NASA it was amazing it was so cool I like cried when I got there did you (laughs) science this is science science is making this happen and these people are really gonna go to space and it was really cool and I remember telling Charlotte all about it I brought her a rocket back and telling her all the planets. And before I, when she was two, she knew all of her planets. Uh, and I took this video and was showing all the science to all the astronauts and saying, this is my daughter. And if you said to her, like, what planet is red? She would say Mars. And if I said, what planet is, uh, has a big spot? She'd say Jupiter. So she just, she just gets that's it. It's amazing. Yeah. And I bet you had to fight Lorraine Kelly for that trip
1: because she is also a space nut.
0: I know she actually has done the weightlessness thing I was trying to ask for that but apparently it was too expensive for me not for Lorraine
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's still time Laura there's still time <laughs> yeah I know come on <laughs> now on this podcast uh, normally we would punctuate three questions with three glasses of wine but as we've said it is very early <laughs> and we're not animals we're decent people uh although I did I did enjoy the fact that you one day had gone out the night before and slightly over Slept, Laura after an ITV news team quiz night.
0: We won. We won. How, how late on air
1: were you because there was just an empty chair for what a good hour?
0: I arrived at half six and I should have arrived at five. it's
1: yeah. not too bad.
0: No so we were on air at six and I got a phone call from my deputy editor at six. Uh, at the hotel, cause the hotel weren't gonna put her through. So I'd like laid everything out perfectly the night before. I'd even had, I remember having a glass of water before I went to bed, but my phones were on silent because they were still in quiz mode. And I just hadn't set an alarm. So luckily I stayed in town. Um, so yeah, and I had my makeup with me. So I just did my makeup in the car. Like,
1: and you came on air and admitted that you'd sort of revived yourself with a cold chicken nugget breakfast and a, and a cup of Diet Coke. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. One of our floor managers brought me over some chicken nuggets and a Coke. And I was like, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's good.
1: <laughs> well, look, no chicken nuggets, no wine or Diet Coke. But hopefully some questions that will get you uh, scratching your head. So are you ready?
0: Yeah,
1: go, go. OK, question number one. As one of the nation's favourite weather presenters, you feel so familiar to so many. And despite seeing so much of you, we don't actually know lots about you. And then I started digging around and I think you're full of surprises, Laura. So I wanted you to kind of unpack (laughs) for me three things that people might be surprised to know about you.
0: Um, I feel like I'm really quite boring and not that exciting. Um, One thing people might be surprised to know is I am a twin. And he is called Mark. And uh, we are, because we are twins, and there's only the two of us, no other siblings, we are ridiculously competitive. Like our entire lives have been who so got this grade, who did that, who can do the timetable square, square the quickest. And it's never been instilled in us in our parents to be like competitive. It's just in us. And it's like ridiculous. It's honestly ridiculous. Everything. And then even, you know, A levels, like GCSEs, degrees. And then, like jobs. So, like, who earns the most money? And then I was earning the most money. Then he got a big pay rise, and now he's earning the most money. That's annoying. So, it yeah. continues. It's
1: not like something you've realised that you,
0: you, you, you're grown ups now. You can leave this. Yeah, no, it, doesn't, it does not end ever, <laughs> ever. Was it so annoying? Was it like
1: um, for the people that have to live around that, for, for your husband or his partner, for example?
0: I just think that they just, that is just us everybody knows that we are really 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 competitive and actually when I had my Hindu, it was in Brighton um it was a it was like a competition themed Hindu. so there was people were split to four teams there were 16 of us and we had to go around Brighton doing different tasks and things and we had to do a scavenger hunt and in my team I had two girls who were just constantly hungry and wanted to stop and eat and I was getting really angry with them because I was like we haven't got time to eat we need to keep going we need to win this scavenger hunt, and then we came second and I was cross with them and yeah I wasn't happy and then we didn't win the weekend either so I wasn't happy then yeah everything for me is is competitive and I think it's really important to be competitive because of that and I was really sad that Charlotte was just a one I wanted her to be a two did you I love being a twin yeah I really really wanted her to be I mean I was really happy to have a baby but I was a bit like oh just one that's a shame oh well you never know. No, I, I know now. One and, one and <laughs> oh, right, Okay.
1: Okay. One's enough. Thank you. I'm full. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, as you say, like you know, because she was premature, it was all a bit rubbish. So I just can't be bothered to do that again. So yeah, a one happy little round baby that's now growing up to be brilliant is, you know, it's selfish to want more. It's kind
1: of heart stopping, isn't it, when they come so soon and they're not ready and they're long. I mean, I think your daughter's uh, was was even earlier than my son. My son was five weeks,
0: early. Um And yeah, she was twenty seven. Twenty seven weeks. Yeah. Laura, that is- I just I literally just got my ASOS delivery and I was waiting. I had this like real um this real like superstition that I was like, wait until your third trimester before you buy anything, before you do anything, before you decorate the room, go look at prams, blah, blah 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 even think about antenatal classes. So I remember getting my ASOS delivery um that the day before I had it and then feeling a bit like ill and saying to my husband, Oh I'm gonna go to bed and have a bath, I feel a bit tired and a bit achy. And then the next day I had her, so I never even wore any of my maternity You're clothes. You're So I went to work the next morning, which was really lucky because that was when we were in the South Bank next to St Thomas's Hospital. I remember like going in, being on the phone to the Met Office, and like having stomach contract, like stomach ache. And then she was saying, Oh, "When's the baby coming?" And I was joking, and I was like, oh, "It feels like today." And then when I got to work, the infamous Debbie dresses looked at me and just said. You look terrible. And I just was like on my tummy just going, oh, you know, these must be Braxton Hicks. This feels like, you know, and then she just instantly knew. So she phoned Dr. Hillary, who was on his way in and explained everything. And he was like, oh, my- it sounds like the baby's coming. Don't tell her. I'll phone St. Thomas's. I'll sort it all out. And then Charlotte comes in and she's like, they're just Braxton Hicks. Don't worry. It's not real. And I'm like, oh, it's amazing. They feel really real. And then Piers came running past and he was like, oh, my God, it looks like she's going to have this baby today. And I was just like, shut up. Go away, you're not helping. (laughs) And I was like, guys, I can just quickly do hair and makeup and just record some weathers. It'll be fine. And they were like, no, you're crazy. Like, no, you've got to go to hospital. And then they were really sweet. They just were like, like, they were like, she doesn't know. She doesn't realise. And they were like, no. So they just went, we just need to do some tests, you know, and see what's going on if the baby wants to come. And um, I just was like, doo, doo, doo. okay, no worries, because Doctor Hillary had like kept me so calm, and I think that was the right like way to be. And um, and then I had this really lovely midwife, this Nigerian lady who was all mine. Like there was no one else in the ward. It was really lucky. And she just said to me, "These babies, they decide when they want to come, and I think yours it wants to come today." And I remember going, oh, "Okay, right, fine, it's coming today." And I just, it just, I don't know. I don't even know why I was not phased or fussed. By it but I had Debbie dresses by my side and then just called my husband and said oh you need to come and bring an overnight bag and then when he walked in the room I was like baby's coming today you're
1: <laughs> such a cool customer uh, I mean even at that very early stage I don't know
0: but they were just really calm they were calm they were, calm. They were so calm and I think because it wasn't busy and like remember my midwife saying you don't know how lucky you are she's like the anesthetist the doctor all the surgeons she was like these are like the a team she said these are mostly do private jobs they just have the best people here today and I just thought yeah we were just lucky lucky in the right hospital you know if we'd have been in our home hospital they wouldn't have taken her because she'd have been too early so yeah they were really they were just really calm and you know so basically I had like a tear and so my waters just broke but I didn't really know because it was so like such a little amount of water and so she you know lots of babies are born prematurely because they have problems with organs or different things she just was early because my body my body wasn't happy that, you know, there was a tear and there probably wasn't enough fluid or something. I still don't really know. So, um, yeah, she just kind of came. And, like, yeah, you don't really know what's going to happen. She was, like, two and a half pounds.
1: (gasps) Laura, that's that's ridiculous. I mean, my son was five pounds and I thought, how am I going to keep him alive? He's so tiny. She was that tiny.
0: Yeah, but they said that that was good. they normally under two pounds for that gestation. So they always just, like, put the positive, like, on it, you know and um and you know and then like so I had so yeah so I only had six hours for the steroids so her lungs didn't inflate properly so yeah that was like her biggest thing is she was on oxygen for like like the entire nearly the entire three months in hospital and I just like Breastfed the shit out. Of me. <laughs> I was that mum that just like I had like a, a spreadsheet and a schedule, and like I was like every three hours I was pumping, and I was the mum that walked in with all these pots, and all the other mums that like, really jealous. So I felt a bit sad, and I was also like, no, I'm a hero. Look at all this breast milk. I'm great. <laughs> it's not just
1: that when your baby is wired up and being kept alive by machines or um you know medics, anything you can do to feel like you're being a mum, you want to do. It's it was the yeah. only thing I
0: could do that no one else could do. And they were like, oh, why don't you do the cares? Why don't you clean them? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do kangaroo care? She hated it. All those machines would ping every time you tried to clean her. And every time we did that, that kangaroo care after 20 minutes, they'd all ping. I just was like, do you know what? I'm, I'm not forced. I don't need to do that. It's fine. Just stick her in and cover her up. And they kept being we want to uncover her. And I'm like, she shouldn't be out yet.
1: uh, (laughs) did the scientist in you start reading up and researching and crunching stats and data and looking Mm at modeling outcomes and possibilities yeah
0: yeah all the time all the time and I think that it was a bit annoying for some of the doctors because sometimes it was really helpful because they would say, look, we know you're scientists, so we'll explain a bit more of the science to you. And we would we would get it. But it also meant that sometimes we would really question them. And obviously they're doctors and they know their stuff, but we would say, right, well, you'll think it's this, but actually could it be this? Or could it be that? And um, luckily we have someone in the family who knows quite a lot about this sort of stuff as well. So so we just kept putting, putting different scenarios forward. I didn't, wasn't always happy just to take oh, she's unwell and we're going to give her antibiotics again and again and again because I didn't want her to have millions of them. I was just like, let's just be a bit more cautious and could it be this and could it be that? And I used to like keep diaries of things and they'd go, right, that's her last dose of these antibiotics for this round. I was like, actually, no, it's not. We've got one more dose to go because you were late this day, this day and this day. And then they went back and did a back count and they were like, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, you've got one more dose to go. And I was like, yeah, I know. know."
1: Well
0: done you. I think sometimes when you feel so emotionally
1: at sea, to hold on to the facts of the matter, that's almost an anchor that, keep, that gives you something to work with.
0: Yeah, and it, but it just, it gives you some zen and a craziness and a, I think it's really important. So now I know that you're
1: a twin, an incredibly uh, competent scientist in a crisis when it comes to keeping your daughter alive. Anything else I'd be surprised to know about you?
0: Um, I used to play the flute. I mean, I still have a flute. I just don't really play it very much. Um I was basically, I mean you won't be surprised to hear this at school. I was in basically every club: hockey, netball, football, I did ballet, tap, modern, cross-country. I was my school cross unbeaten girls cross-country champion so competitive. Um, <laughs> Every lunchtime and every after school, I was in a club. And when I was at university, I was my first year rep in hall. I was the physics rep, the maths rep and the meteorology rep. And they'd be like, Can we have a volunteer? And I'd be like, like someone not Laura, someone who's not Laura!
1: <laughs> but, but i bet that was saying you heard a lot of school someone who's not laura please <laughs>
0: <laughs> Give someone <else> a <laughs> uh, that's fantastic
1: i mean obviously you love what you do and it's so evident even in in the way that you deliver the weather to us um and i love it when they have for, you know people on who are coming on to the show to talk about climate and then you know Piers was always very good at bringing you in on that stuff wasn't he and, always, and everybody started to realise what an incredible resource you were actually, um, and you know, and a huge respect, Laura, because you never stop learning, you never stop challenging, and um, and your book is kind of a testament to that. Really, it's that big old curious mind of yours dumping it all down on the
0: page. Yeah, yeah, that's you're totally right. And do you know that's what I realised? Like, even maybe about four years ago, if I tried to pitch a climate change story at work or to TV, to ITV and say let's do this. It was even back then. It was kind of like let's just call it extreme weather. You'd be like okay, because climate change is a bit of a weird, scary word. What does it mean? Do people even want to get on board. But I think in the last couple of years, I think that people are like, yeah, we get it. We've seen loads of extreme weather. We've seen it happening more often. We see how crazy it is. Like. Remember the floods in the summer in China and like the whole subway was just like completely flooded and they had the most rainfall they've ever had in an hour. And then in Germany, they had like crazy floods with like days and days and days of rain. It was like a year's worth of rain in like four days or something. And the whole landscape changed like these whole hillsides, which are shifting and whole towns and buildings. And then in the summer um, in Canada, they had the highest temperature they've ever had. It was nearly 50 degrees. And um that's hotter than it's ever been in L.A. Like L.A. is thousands of miles further south, That to put that into context. And it broke the temperature record by nearly five degrees. And the next day they had a massive wildfire and 90% of the town burnt down. It's like that's not, they're not accidents. They're not just things that just happen. Actually, scientists did this thing called an attribution study, which is one of my favourite things to read about. People need to put things into context. So they said, look. Lots of people, there's people who, who just don't believe in climate change, they don't think it's happening, they think that would happen anyway. So they go, right, let's have a world where we didn't put loads of pollution in, where we haven't had fossil fuels and we haven't had cars and in industry. Let's see by today how likely it would be to happen. And scientists said, do you know it would happen, but it would happen once every 150,000 years. So basically, they're saying it's, it's basically nearly impossible to happen. But because we're now warmer, the Earth's warm by just over one degree. Um, because of the Industrial Revolution, or because of cars, or because of industry, it would now scientists say happen once every thousand years. And by the end of the century, if we keep warming, it would happen every other year. So we know that it's us. Like we can attribute that heat wave to that wildfire. Yeah.
1: Is this what you get into bed with every night? Like, oh, I've got a lovely attribution <laughs> report to get my head around.
0: I mean, there were quite a lot in the book. I'm not going to lie. Some of them got
1: taken out. Listen, your passion for what you do, it just fizzes out of you. It's fantastic. (laughs) Okay, are you ready for your next question? Go ahead.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more
1: As a scientist, as you've just discussed with me, you know, you understand better than most that in order for us as a planet to thrive and survive, we need sunshine and showers. And the same, I think, could be said of us as human beings. So I want to know from you um, the times in your life where you've had your own severe weather fronts, So a storm you've weathered, your own experience of feeling like it's your time in the sun, your time to shine, and when life's kind of really poured down on you.
0: I feel that I generally have a very sunny disposition and I'm generally a really positive person. And yeah, I would guess, you know, and I've been very fortunate, touch wood, you know, that we haven't had any like major tragedies in my family. And I still have a grandma and then I lost all my other grandparents at like old age, you know, so we've been lucky in in that sense, do you know what I mean? So I guess, yeah, my biggest... Downpour moment was definitely Charlotte, but even then, I managed to still try and stay as bright and positive as possible. And I was really fortunate that you know ITV were great, and we had the money that I didn't need to go back to work straight away because the maternity scheme is crazy, and you have a baby and it's in hospital and your maternity starts, and then you and you actually yeah because you don't want to go back to to work, you have to stay, you have to go to hospital every day. But you know I just stayed in the hospital all day every day and. Like you said, I just had to be helpful. I had to, I wrote a diary every day. It wasn't really an emotional one. It was like a factual based one that just helped me to just put down on paper exactly what was happening. Um, but I think the thing that was probably the hardest to weather was coming home, like not having machines to tell you that your baby's alive is, is really hard. Like most parents come home and they, they know that their baby is alive because they can see it. But if you've only had a machine tell you, it's, it's really difficult to trust that they're alive so we used to take turns and shifts like just checking every hour <laughs> she was breathing like through the night and stuff and um we were kind of like crazy um, um like anti-back people you know we had to do everything we, we we want we we wanted to do so we basically lived the lockdown that everyone has just lived but for 2 years so We would just have a mat for Charlotte to play her toys. If it rolled off the mat, we would anti-back it and put it back on again. If anyone visited our house, first of all, they had to be 100% well. We sent them straight to the bathroom to wash their hands. And then they had to anti-back as well. If they hugged her and we only had my parents, my husband's parents and like grandmas were allowed to like hug. And we had like a blanket that they, they could wear to hug her. And no one else was allowed to hug her or touch her. And we weren't allowed, we didn't have any more than like six people in the house at a time because we were really worried about germs and we wouldn't go out, we would just go for walks in fresh air and, um, you know, I never went to a baby class, I never went to the soft play. Uh, yeah, I just didn't really have, like, play dates. It was probably harder coming out of hospital yeah. than being in the hospital. I would agree
1: with that entirely. I think once you get home, you feel, you feel unsupported. You've got nobody to answer your questions. Um, it's quite frightening, actually. And if you had it on a far greater scale I mean that's extreme isn't it you did you do that because you were terrified that she'd get poorly or because that was the advice you were given
0: we we sort of it was sort of the advice and like the advice from the premature baby website is you know don't go to town at the weekend don't go to supermarkets because all people want to do is look in and lean in and go oh your baby and then just go germs um So, I think we just took that and ran a little bit with it. And I know that lots of people thought we were a bit crazy and they'd be like, oh, it's okay. You don't need to do this. And we'd have friends go, yeah, you can come round. You know, we're going to have a few people round for drinks. And oh, such, just got a bit of a cold. That's okay, isn't it? And we'd go, we're not going to come then. And we don't want to put you in a difficult position. And then sometimes people would go, we won't, we won't come. And actually, I was really lucky. I had an antenatal group. The lady messaged and said, I really want you to come. She's like, I know you've had your baby, but these mums will be on a journey with you. So, I turned up with no bump. And they all had bumps, and that was really hit me. I was like, "Oh God, you don't, you don't have babies yet. I have a baby," and I was really angry. I was really angry. I was like, "I need to be at hospital. I don't want to be here." blah blah blah. blah, blah. But then they were like, "Well, there's another mum. She's already had her babies as well." So our group was so lovely, and they like we connected like straight away. And they always used to do outdoor stuff with us. And actually, one thing we did do was baby massage because, like, obviously, babies in hospital are only used to being touched with medical things and like bad things no touch is a positive touch really and Charlotte used to hate being touched she'd cry like loads and loads and loads so me and all of our antenatal mums all went to a baby massage class together for like six weeks and if anybody was a bit sick for me and my friend Sophie they wouldn't come and they'd make sure that they, that they this well people came so yeah but I just actually felt like one thing that you know or you hear from people who have term babies is everyone descends on them and they want to see them and they want to hug the babies and they want to kiss them. And it's like, actually, we just had time with us. It was actually, that was a nice thing that it wasn't all of these other people wanting to come and hug us. So we have, I think, a really nicer bond, a much closer bond, the three of us, than we would have done. But it just was really annoying because sort of they're very susceptible until the age of two for all these illnesses. And yeah, Charlotte had a few times when she went back into hospital and was back on oxygen. And you're like, oh, we took that one risk and we went to that cafe that time and she got ill. We'll never do that again. Um, and then her two year assessment, they're like, we're great. She's happy, you know, feel that, you know, you can take more steps and do more things and maybe just sort of branch out a bit more. And we were like, yeah. And then six months later, we went into a bloody lockdown. And oh, no. We went back into lockdown mode and cleaning mode and not seeing people mode. So for us, it was so easy to slip back into that. And it, it wasn't stressful at all because we just went back into the life that we knew.
1: But my goodness, you'd already lived your own self-imposed you know out of what you feel is complete necessity lockdown oh my god you've done four years of living like this Laura
0: yeah we've never had like a proper holiday we've never like wow. we didn't like going in a hotel I think for two years because we were too scared we've never been on a plane and I would love to take Charlotte on a plane even though planes obviously create greenhouse gases and carbon footprints you know I would still like to go on a holiday with her because I think it's important I think you're allowed to
1: do that that's okay.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think you've
1: offset your carbon footprint. You've got money in the bank on that front. <laughs> but what about a time when you put your face in the sun because it's your time to shine? What have been those big glory moments for you?
0: Um, glory moments are just when, just I think, I mean, I don't really ever think, oh, I've done well, I'm brilliant or amazing. Um, it's just not the way I think. But I mean, literally, funny enough, I was talking to my friends last night, ages and ages and ages ago, ITV had a, a show called Drive. It was like a driving. Vernon hosted train. it, didn't like, he? Vernon Kay? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yes, he did. Yeah. And there was like Louis Walsh, um, uh, Marilyn Frostrup, Angus Deaton, Colin Jackson, Professor Green, um, Johnny Vegas. And we just kind of drove different cars and and just week on week, there were loads of challenges. And I remember on before I arrived and I found this out later, from we all had a driving instructor, a professional driving instructor, and they were like, they had me as their first person out they looked at the list and they're like she'll be out first and then after day one of training they were like we now have her as our wild card to win I was like people just underestimate me I think they don't realize how competitive I am how driven I am not like driven to succeed I just want to be the very best like for me the most important thing if anybody met me or like if they work with me I want them to say oh she's great at what she does I wouldn't necessarily care so much if they said she's really nice or she's really pretty or not that I think on either of those things, but you know, for me, the most important thing is being credible and respected and doing well. And so, and then on that whole show, I did really well and then I made a mistake and got knocked out, and then I got back into the final. And um, I was talking about how we did loads of training and um, people would like drive off, and then I kept asking questions like, can I just ask? When the race actually happens, if people were knocked out of the race like they were earlier, would they get back in the race? And they were like, no, no, if they were, if they had to be craned back out, then they then that would be them out of the race and then what actually ended up happening in the race like nearly everybody wiped out there was going to be just me and angus finishing the race and they thought that wasn't a good telly so they then made me and angus carry on driving craned in i think colin and um professor green i'm obviously still really bitter about this and um and then professor green ended up winning and i was like person who was the winner was the person who did the most laps the quickest which was me I am the winner. And then they had this like big fight with them about how I should have won. And they were like, Yeah, but we we still I know you didn't stop the race because I didn't stop. So, you know, I just I mean I'm more like the shining moment was just that I just I just love doing something brilliant and I love learning something new in a completely different arena and being good at it. Not like, oh amazing but you know, I just loved. I, loved I love that. that. So, that cool. so you
1: that you you were shining in that moment. They clearly weren't recognizing it enough. So you started to put some stats on the wall to show them. No, you're wrong. I'm the shiniest of shiny people right now.
0: I'm the biggest <laughs> achiever. Give me that presser, <laughs> <read. laughs> please. My, I had a moral victory but I mean just the whole it was sort of that was probably like my first experience of showbiz you know having your own run i get anything you want apart from all I wanted was sweets and I was then easily pleased and they were like what do you want for lunch I was like oh I'll go and look and see what's for lunch I'm good you don't need to do anything for me but just kind of I loved that loved the feeling of going oh my god actually like Feel like a superstar or like a rock star. This is cool.
1: <laughs> Did you not feel like a rock star uh, or a superstar? Working with polar bears or uh, going to NASA or even briefing the air force on weather fronts to make sure that you know our guys could navigate themselves safely no matter what uh, they were up against. I mean, those are all quite rock star moments, I think.
0: All of those moments are really lovely. Like when I was at the RAF. The crews used to come in and lots of them were men, obviously. And um, I was really, really conscious that I didn't want them to kind of walk in and be like, "Ooh, it's a girl. This is exciting. So I was actually, when I first joined, really unfriendly. (laughs) And I just like wore a sharp suit, hair back, minimal makeup. And I just wanted to be credible. And they would kind of test me and ask me silly questions, see if I knew the answers. So I just was like super prepared every day. I had to be like super, duper, duper prepared for anything they'd ask. So i knew the answers and after a couple of like weeks or months of just doing that then i became me and was fun and friendly and they then loved that i loved what i did and they'd come in and they'd ask questions about stuff and they'd go we talk about fog and fog clears because the temperature rises and it rises the humidity and it burns off but i'd say "Oh, if the cloud comes in the temperature won't rise so the humidity won't rise so the fog won't clear and I'd kind of could come in and I'd give them little lessons and I'd give them little science. And then they'd understand. They'd go, oh, the fog didn't clear yesterday because of what you were saying, Laura, or this. And I actually liked that in the end, they were like, yay for learning science. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Every day's a school day.
0: Every day. But yeah, and you said like, Svalbard for me was like more than a trip of a lifetime. That was, you know, probably after having Charlotte, the most amazing thing I've ever done, ever done. And I can't see that anything would surpass it in what I learned and what I saw. Like, I know science, you know, I've read the climate reports. I've spoken to the Met Office scientists who wrote the reports. I've learned all about the cryosphere, which is the frozen parts of our planet. I know how, you know, the glaciers are in retreat. They're at the lowest extent for 2000 years. I get the numbers, but I didn't realize the reality of it. So we had this opportunity to go to Svalbard, which is warming more than anywhere else on planet Earth like six times faster than anywhere else it's like this positive cycle so the more ice melts the more it will melt and it will just keep going because ice is white and just like a white t-shirt like i'm wearing today like tennis players wear it reflects the heat back to space so all of the ice on earth is not it's not just that it's cold it's reflecting back all of the sun's rays and it's helping to keep us cool but the hotter we get the more the ice melts and it either exposes the sea, which is darker or the land, which is darker. And obviously if you have a black t-shirt, it absorbs more heat. So the more the ice melts, the more land we see, the more it absorbs. So it just makes it warmer and warmer and warmer and warmer. And it's just on this like rapid runaway that we call it a tipping point, a point of irreversible change. And we're so close to not being able to stop this change. And it's crazy. Like we were at this place um, in Svalbard called the East Fjord. So the Ice Fjord. Um, and there's no ice. The ice field doesn't freeze over anymore. It hasn't frozen over in like the summer for decades, but it used to freeze over every winter. And I was talking to a, a guy who runs tourism, and he said five years ago, it got to winter and it didn't freeze in September or October or November. And he was having to phone people say, Don't come. We can't do trips on snowmobiles. Don't come. We can't do Husky trips. Don't come. Don't come to come. And then it didn't freeze over all winter. And then he suddenly realized that's it. That's climate change. The, the, you know, the ice fjord is not going to be ice anymore. His whole tourism industry, he lost business for like those two years. And then he suddenly really had to come up with complete new ways for people to enjoy the landscapes there. And the whole ski season and the snow seasons changed. So it used to be, say, from this happens like I went on a trip to um, Austria as well, like this climate summit. They used to be able to ski in Austria from, say, September to May. But now it's like more October to April, and then the ski season is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking because the snow comes. So actually, the fate of glaciers isn't made in the winter with how much snow falls. It's made in the summer with how when it when it melts. So now it's say it my snow or winter, and then by May, all of that snow's melted. So from May onwards, everything else that's melting is last year's snow, or the snow before, the snow before, the snow before. So they have to like cover them in blankets to try and stop the sun from like making them melt. It's really crazy. And then I met this like really cool guy who s- took me to a fjord and we were stood on this like rocky bit. And he, and he went, Oh, he said I arrived 40 years ago and I was literally just about to turn 40. And he was like, look up the hill behind us. And he was like a mile up there is where the glacier ends. He's like, where we're standing is where it ended 40 years ago. And I was like, wow, that's a long, like, that's a long way. And he was like, Oh not just that he said look up 10 meters he was like it was 10 meters high and it went up a mile that way he was like all that ice is gone that's not coming back it's all gone into the oceans that all makes the sea levels rise that's one glacier on one island and it's happening everywhere and I was just like so I just saw the landscapes changing industries changing um and they were talking about the polar bears which was like my big thing for my daughter it was really bad
1: (laughs) you know what, you've got a daily platform where you can pepper your reports with with this kind of stuff and you can bring it into people's uh, minds and their ears and you can get them thinking about it. And And that's really, that's really good. And you do that really well.
0: But you know, like we, we got criticism, you know, for flying. And I remember phoning Susanna and saying, look, people have said, you're, you know, you're all for climate change, you're flying. Why would you do that? You're having a carbon footprint. And we were like, I was like, should we talk about it? She was like, yeah, we just need to own the fact that, yeah, we're having a negative impact on the planet by flying there, but we had a much, much bigger impact with the millions of people that watched the show who wouldn't have necessarily watched an Arctic document documentary. Who then afterwards said, "I didn't realize what we were doing to the planet. I didn't realize how big a deal it was." I've made changes, or my sons made changes, or we want to make changes. And then that's what I was like. That kind of happened. Is you know, I guess just over a year ago, I was like, "People get it now." And all people are saying is, "What can I do?" And will it make a difference? And that's people now want to make a difference. And and it might seem like, you know, a little tiny change, you know, a bamboo toothbrush over a plastic toothbrush isn't a big deal. But it is when we know how many millions of plastic toothbrushes we throw away every year and bamboo ones you can stick in the ground and it can give back to Earth. And and that's when I realised that, you know, that's what I wanted to. That's why my next step was to get people to make changes. But without being like preachy and pointy, like you must do this. Just like just you know my phrase is no one can do everything everyone can do something like I love a tick list there's a tick list at the back of things you can do you know just cross some of them out there might be things you're never going to do that's fine you can't do everything I mean I tried to do everything at the beginning and my mind nearly exploded and my husband was getting very cross he was like what are we doing this week what crazy eco idea are you doing now And we had this like food like a bowl in the kitchen just to put food. and I didn't Away food waste, I just just always put it in the bin. But that's crazy because it produces methane, which is 80 times more warming than carbon dioxide. So it's a really easy change just to put your scraps and stick it in your compost bin or your councils usually recycle them. And, um, but I'd leave it on the side for like two days and he'd be like, It's your venture. I'm not doing that. You need to put it in your Greta bin. <laughs> your Greta bin? <laughs> yeah, it's call it that. Like Greta Sounds bin. like he's really on board. <laughs> well do you know the big the, the big thing and I tease him and he hasn't actually read the book and he doesn't know he's in it so much those are the things that like we already do to save the planet we do because he's really tight like it's ridiculous he's really tight but they save money like loads of things you can do save money so we're already onto a winner so lots of the things I've said we could do this this and this and PS will save you this much money he might roll his eyes but he's he's in he's on board as soon as you give him a cost saving
1: which you know, for the times that we're in as well Laura, with the cost of you know, living crisis this is this Doesn't is really happen, welcome yeah. on, on you know even if even if you you know saving the planet isn't enough to motivate you for some people just the cost saving alone will, will be really welcome
0: yeah totally and you know obviously we always talk about meat and how if you had a plant-based diet it would be better for the planet but you know it, if people switch to more more plants less meat it will be so much better for the nhs as well for cardiovascular diseases for lots of things that they that just the, the health and well-being and actually if you have less meat and more plants i'm not saying you have to. everyone has to go vegan or do it every day it'll save you money meat is much more expensive than vegetables and we get these veg boxes delivered and yeah they are do you know they are a bit more expensive but we have vegetables that we 've never like had before, and we're eating meals that we 've never eaten before, and we 're easily eating much less meat. I mean we only eat chicken and fish, and maybe you could say I shouldn't eat any of those because I, if I was a true environmentalist i wouldn't, but you know we I haven't found a nice alternative to chicken yet, and I like fish, uh, but you know we are working our way towards it, but I don't feel like that's the other thing i don 't feel like i'm missing out and I met this lovely guy in Svalbard called Kim Holman, and he was um, a guy at the Norwegian Polar Institute, and he was like. I get really cross when people think that they have to make sacrifices to tackle climate change. It's not a sacrifice. There are so many benefits and positives for most of the things that you can do that will then save our planet. How is that losing? It's only winning. And I was like you're right you're right there is there is no downside to one day not having a bit of meat you know because that's helped to reduce the emissions which has helped you to be healthier and save a bit of money and save the planet absolutely and
1: that's what the book's all about those simple changes that you can make which takes me really nicely to my third and final question for you Have documented simple, small changes that will make a huge difference. But if you translate that into the people in your life, um, I wonder who have been the people that have been your own change makers that have come in and they, they may have made a huge change to to the way that you live, or just a, a very incremental one, but nonetheless they've left their mark.
0: Okay, well I I guess it would have to be my mum. Mum's drive everything don't they and I think I was really fortunate and didn't even notice that my mum she worked but she only worked during school hours so she was there for every drop-off for every pickup you know cooked every meal and my dad worked full-time but he wasn't like gone all the time or anything but you know in a world where I do work and I do pick-ups but not drop-offs and you know obviously it's holiday time and you have to juggle all of that just having a mum around who you know you were her number one priority me and my brother and she's always driven us to try and do everything so you know putting us forward for clubs but if we don't like it we don't have to do it supporting us and helping with our homework so we could be the best as we can be and if it doesn't work out getting some help so just like always believing always pushing but just pushing just enough so that the pushback isn't you know a tantrum and then it goes the complete other way and yeah she shaped me and my brother to be who we are and to have worked as hard as we have to have the jobs that we have
1: yeah what about on a professional level
0: um two one would be my um geography teacher who when I this is such a loser story when I was 14 he um he he was doing geography and he was like right I'm going to tell you about something really cool but I'm going to get you to just play it out first so he got the girls to line up in a row boys to line up in a row straight row and then we had to run across the classroom bumping into each other by the time we got to the other side we were all wiggly and he was like half of you are cold air half of you are warm air that's how the arctic pushes down the equatorial warm air pushes up we sit under that in the uk and we're either on the warm side of it the cold side of it or we're under it and it rains and i was like boom that's interesting that um, was it and you that was it that was, yeah <laughs> yeah have you at jet stream so i phoned the met office like Did that you? day how old are you 14 Wow! And I said, "What have I got to do to become a weather forecaster?" And they were like, "A level maths and physics." And I loved maths, physics not so much. Like physics, I really struggled with, so I did it at A level. And the first year, I got an ungraded. No, <laughs> my exam. Oh, yeah, it just
1: didn't. That click. must have tortured you. That must have absolutely... Laura failed. Oh, it must at have some- really had to go and <laughs> bang your head in a corner and get over that one.
0: It just didn't. It just didn't click. So like, I got extra help that summer. Worked really hard. And then I loved physics and it just clicked and I loved physics so much that I did physics and meteorology at uni. And um it just kind of was all mapped out. It just kind of then I was really lucky that I just got the job at the Met Office and then I worked at the RAF and then the Beeb and and you know what? Like I never wanted to be on TV. Did you know no. that? So how did you end up here? I never wanted this this so this would be my second, my second person who improvements me. As soon as you're a girl who says you want to be a weather forecaster, everyone says, Oh, you're gonna be on TV in a weather girl. I was like, No, like why would I work this hard to just go, sunny, rainy? I was like, no, that's that's not what I'm doing. I want to do proper science. I want to do proper forecasting, you know. And I knew about the RAF and my dad's friend went to the RAF and he was like, oh, Bryce Norton is fantastic. It's an RAF base. They fly the troops and cargo all over the world. So that was where I did my training. And I got to learn about UK weather, but also overseas weather as well. And I just, I loved that, you know, I could do the forecasting locally, forecast for them flying all over the world and I really loved that and then my boss at the time Duncan Tudor was great and he was really invested in me trying new things doing new things and he was like look a job's come up at the BBC and they're really desperate for a girl like everyone's gone off to have babies and they really want a female forecaster and you know they're asking for people to put people forward and I was like I've told you I don't want to be on telly I'm not doing this but blah, blah, blah. he was like just for six months he's like you know never say never give everything a go I was not happy at all, but I just went, I thought I'd go for a tour and have a look around. And actually, I was really surprised. It wasn't just like, ooh, rain, cloud. It wasn't like that. You know, there was a whole team of forecasters on the forecasting bench, helping to tell the story, talking to the regions, disseminating the story to them, talking to the Met Office, getting the latest science, talking to the producers from the BBC to tell the right story, talking to the World Weather Team to make sure the world weather stories were covered. And you did World Weather Forecast. You did the British Forces Broadcasting Service. There was interactive, there was online, there was radio from Radio 1 to Radio 4, shipping forecasts. And I was like, oh, well, there's more to it than I thought. And maybe it wouldn't be so bad to give it a go just for six months. Fine, I'll do it. And, um, and, and he was like, it's okay, you can come back. I was like, yeah, I'll be coming back. And then I didn't because I loved I it. I think that's really helpful for people to know because you do think dismissively
1: that, you know, the weather is something that is is covered in, I mean, what do you get, one minute 30 if you're lucky? And it's, it's kind of like a sort of necessary piece of furniture on a show. And actually, when you start to, as you say, break it down and look at being part of the BBC weather team, it's being part of a really cool science broadcast unit. That's what it is.
0: I do you know, when we went to the um, Pride of Britain Awards, this year, everybody was going to the scientists, you know, the people who'd made the Oxford AstraZeneca, the Moderna, all of the scientists, nobody was really taking photos with celebrities because everybody was like, the people of the moment, the people we want to see, the actual rock stars are those guys. Anybody
1: beyond that, that has been a bit of a change maker for you? I mean, your husband, possibly.
0: Oh, yeah, I should probably add him in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he we did physics at university and he was a real brain, still is a real brain. So he always helped me to understand things I didn't want to and explain them in a really great way. And I just guess he enables me to do what I do because, yes, I have to travel around the country or around the world. And, you know, he's able to be the solid base at home with our daughter to make sure that all of that is possible and always supports me in everything I do and is so unfazed by anything, so busy. Which yeah. is great.
1: Yeah, I mean, why would he be? Unless you've chosen this as a profession. I don't know why people think it's so f-
0: But it would be better if he wasn't so tight. <laughs> yeah, look at <with> the tightness. <laughs> well that that's not too bad,
1: too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Laura, I have loved listening to you. You're so passionate. Um, I can't imagine that this is all of you. I think we've got so much more to see. And I know it's all there. I just hope you find new places, be it print with your with your books. Um, you should think about a podcast, you know, um, or, or your work on television. Just keep, just keep doing it, keep saying it, and keep teaching people like me to want to know more and to be better.
0: Thank you. I will. I do. I love it. And like I said, a sprinkle of science goes a long way. And just, you know, like I said, I don't want to be preachy, but you know, just the things in the book. There's just like loads and loads and like facts, but stuff where we're just all a bit rubbish. So like, one in six people. I mean, seventy percent of people have takeaway cup but only one in six of us actually ever take it out. So just like, remember to take it out. Uh, like, you know, every three weeks we could fill the Empire state building with glass bottles and jars that go into landfill that we could just recycle. So just, just take a moment, just to stop and think about some of the really easy things that you could do. And when you start doing a couple, you'll want to do more and you'll just be like, okay, these, these little changes are actually really- Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so
1: much for your time. It's been a real pleasure actually thank getting you. to know you, despite the fact that I feel like I know you. So thank you. A huge thank you to Laura Tobin for joining me today. Wow, I have learned a lot. And don't forget, you can grab a copy of her new book, Everyday Ways to Save Our Planet, which is out now online, or you don't have to fly, you can just walk to your nearest bookshop. Think of the carbon footprint. And if you fancy hearing more great chat with top broadcasters, writers, or scientists, why not have a leisurely peruse through our back catalogue and have a listen to chats with Charlene White, and Shepard, Lorraine Kelly and her daughter Rosie, Josie Gibson, Kate Silverton, and of course daytime TV legends Richard and Judy are in there, as are many more. My thanks to you as always for loaning us your ears and to Ben Robbins and the Yahoo Studios team who produced the show with me. Our music comes courtesy of Andy Bell. Don't forget to check out his brand new solo material. It's out right now as is his work with Ride and Oasis. You can get that wherever you get your music. I'll be back next Friday with more great guests. Until then, thanks for listening.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.
1: Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods